All right, we're going to get started again today, picking up where we left off last time, Roman numeral four, the polemicis. And before we get to letter C, the figure we're going to be studying today is Origin of Alexandria, letter C in our Forerunners of the Faith curriculum. Before we get there, though, uh, we're going to revisit the group discussion questions that are contained in your workbooks that we didn't quite have enough time to get to during our last study. So we're going to start there after we read a passage of Scripture and pray to get started. Can I get a volunteer after I pray to read 2 Timothy 2.15? 2 Timothy 2.15. Hannah. She had her hand up first. I appreciate the eagerness, though, Whit. So Hannah's going to read that passage after I pray. And then we're going to dive in. And Lord willing, at the conclusion of this lesson, we are going to be moving into Lesson 5. Still in the patristic era, but making progress through our curriculum nonetheless. So let me pray, and we will dive into our study this morning. Father, every good and perfect gift comes from you in the heavenly places And we are the recipients of your bounty in so many ways, though we are so undeserving of anything at all but your judgment for our sins. God, we are so thankful for your your grace and your mercy that abounds to thousands of generations, Lord. God, we are grateful that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are the recipients of that grace and of that mercy. And we pray, Father, that these lessons would be opportunities for us to consider the excellencies of walking in a personal relationship with you, that the fullness of life that we, that we can so often look to be satisfied through um, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, those things, though they may provide pleasure for a season, though they may provide satisfaction for a time, we know, God, that they are fleeting, and only you can provide us with that of which our souls crave. We crave the transcendent. We crave soul satisfaction, soul rest, soul contentment. And God, you provide that and then some in Christ. You give us everything that we need and more in Him. And I pray that every person in this room and every person who stumbles upon this recording would come to know you through faith in Christ, the one name given under heaven whereby man can be saved. I pray that your Holy Spirit would Give us wisdom today as we seek to study biblical, theological, and historical truths from this curriculum. Help us to accurately understand those truths. And Father, help us to rightly apply those truths to our life so we can be faithful men and women following after the example that we see modeled by our Lord and Savior in the pages of Holy Scripture. We pray for your blessing on the rest of this Lord's Day. May it be honoring to you. May it be edifying to us. May we be encouraged and motivated to leave this place and put you on display before a watching world in the week to come. We commit this study to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, together with your Holy Spirit, who indwells every true believer. Amen. Hannah, take it away. Very good. So today, that passage is going to have direct relevance to what we're going to be discussing. This idea 
of accurately handling the word of truth. What do you think the word of truth is? Just if you had to say. Yeah, the Bible, right? God's word. So um, we're going to get there with origin. Very fascinating character. Probably at least if I had to say based on everyone we've studied thus far in Forerunners of the Faith, he is by far the most fascinating He's also by far the most frustrating, and we're going to see why in just a few moments. Um, but before we get to origin uh, and, and we see a little bit about the importance of accurately handling the word of truth by virtue of studying the life and ministry of origin, I want us to revisit the discussion questions that we didn't get to last week. It's at the very end of letter B under Roman numeral 4. You should see a box in your workbooks right under the section discussing Tertullian. So if you have a workbook, you should be open there by now. I'm going to read the discussion question, and we're going to discuss these questions together. Let me read it now. Huh? Um, It'll be different in your workbook. It should be Roman numeral 4 of Lesson 4 under Tertullian. What page is at? Charlie's asking what page it's on. 39. There you go. So the questions that I want us to look to, I guess it's really just one question, but it's a very lengthy worded question. It says this, the doctrine of the Trinity is based on two fundamental truths. The first truth is that there is only one God. And the second truth is that this one God eternally exists in three distinct persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom is truly and equally God. Can you think of some verses that would support these dual biblical truths? So, um, thinking about a passage, you know, we, we went during our last lesson, we talked about monotheism, this idea that God is, is one being, or He's one in essence. There's only one divine essence. But that one divine essence is co-equally and co-eternally shared by three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I want us to focus on passages that we see evidence of this reality. We see evidence that there's one divine being who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I have five passages that I've found. There's more, but I want just off the top of your head, based on your previous knowledge, let's talk about some passages that you may be aware of that you could use to support the doctrine of the Trinity. Sorry. Yeah, um, where in that? So I know that there's a passage in Matthew. I think I can find it in John, though. Let's see. Uh, I think John 1. Yeah, so Jesus' baptism. I have the passage in Matthew. Here it is. So it's, it's, it's referenced in John 1. Um, John 1, verses 20. Eight and following, these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptized. And the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he would be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified 
that this is the Son of God. So you have the one who sent John to baptize, Father. You have the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the Son, and the Spirit, of course, of the Spirit, right? So Trinitarian reference there in, in John 1, 28 to 34. And, of course, the baptism in Matthew 3, 16. That's the baptism passage that I noted. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So, parallel passages there for sure. Other texts. Ellie. Yeah, Genesis 1. Genesis 1, there's definitely echoes of that. Uh, you have... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but down below, so God is one, right? But then in verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image. God is the only one talking there, but he's he's talking within the Godhead, us, Trinity. It's a reference there in Genesis 1. Now, it's made explicit in light of New Testament revelation. If you only had the Old Testament, you'd you'd have a... a hint there, it probably wouldn't be as clear as it is to us because we have the New Testament, but nonetheless, I think that's certainly a valid reference when we read it out, out of uh, a New Testament perspective. Yeah, John 1, read that for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So you have the word identified as God and yet being with God. So you have a plurality of persons within the divine essence. Other texts. Other texts that you would use to defend the Trinity to our Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormon, Muslim friends, those who deny that God is a Trinitarian being. Even our Jewish friends, they deny that God is Trinity. And just to make it clear, if you deny that God is Trinity, you believe in a false God. It's not enough to say that God is one being. we got to say that at the very least. But the one God eternally exists in three persons. So we must be Trinitarian monotheists. We must not be Unitarian monotheists. Y'all remember what Unitarian means? One person, right? God is one person. He's a unit. Unitarian Yeah, um, we talked about one at the baptism, but at the very end, I, I noted this one, Mac. You may be thinking about the Great Commission. You guys are all familiar with the Great Commission mandate. Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen to 20. Jesus came up and spoke to the disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. So Trinitarian reference there. Any others that you guys wanted to share? Let me give you an easy one. Memorize this one. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You have all three persons declared by Paul in writing to conclude his second canonical letter to the Corinthians. The baptism one's good. Great Commission's good. Second Corinthians 13, 14's easy. Um, there's more, but I think you guys have a, a decent amount of passages to go to. 
And I know I've said it many times already this morning, but I want to hear it regurgitated by you guys for um, assessment, see where you guys are at. Say I'm a atheist who doesn't think the Bible teaches the Trinity, or I'm a, I'm a Jew, or I'm a Muslim, or I'm a uh, Mormon, or I'm a Jehovah's Witness, and I say, show me in your sacred text where God is presented as a Trinity. Where would you go? How would you, I should say, not where would you go? We looked at some passages of where you'd go. How would you explain that he's a Trinity? Basic, basic, give me a summary statement. That he is um, one being and three persons. There you go. One being and three persons, and those three persons are? Very good. It's that simple. Now, as you get older and as you study more, some of you are going to be able to get more sophisticated with explaining what, it, what do we mean by the three persons um, subsisting in the divine being? Um, how is the divine being not divided by there being three persons? We're not going to get into those weeds right now because if I get into those weeds, you will likely not understand what I'm saying. So um, as you get older, though, and as you study more, there are more in-depth ways of defending the Trinity than just saying God is one being who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that is where we must start, and that's where um, I think all Christians need to be, at the bare minimum. You need to be able to say, what is the Trinity? We do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God who, from all eternity, co-equally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One being, three persons, that's where we start, bare minimum. Everybody good on that? Okay. Okay, so now we're going to transition into origin of Alexandria. He is the last of the polemicists that we are going to look at in this section of the Forerunners of the Faith curriculum. Just by way of review, does anybody want to remind us of what a polemicist or what polemics are? Yes, Hannah. Defending the faith within the church, right? Defending against false doctrine or false practices among self-identifying Christians, right? Um, and then apologetics. How does that differ from apologetics? Anybody? Yep, defending faith against unbelievers, against the world, against anybody and everybody. It's not specifically geared towards the local church or towards self-identifying Christians. Okay, so origin of Alexandria. Notice in your workbook, born around estimated 184, died estimated around 253. There may be some fluctuation of years there, but more or less that is the time frame in which historians note his life. Buznitz, in giving us a summary statement of origin here, he notes that origin was born in Alexandria, Egypt. As a young man, his father was martyred for being a Christian. Origen wanted to go with his father to be martyred, but he was prevented by his mother who hid his clothes so he could not leave the house. I guess he could have gone naked to be martyred. If he really wanted to be martyred bad enough, an argument could be made. He could have gone naked, but he didn't want the public embarrassment, so he stayed home and he did not die as a martyr with his father. Moving on, he attended a Christian training school in Alexandria, and Origen was part of the church there until he came into conflict with the bishop. Keep that in mind. Conflict with presiding religious authorities at a young age. 
Origen moved to Caesarea, where he became a well-known teacher and a prolific writer. Origen was one of the most influential Christian thinkers of the early church, producing roughly, here's a blank in your workbook, 2,000 treatises on various theological subjects. But his legacy is a mix of both positive and negative contributions. So that first blank under Origen, 2,000. He was a prolific writer and thinker. We're going to first start out by looking at the positive side of Origen here. On the positive side, Origen organized the first systematic theology in a work called On First Principles. Now, a systematic, just so you guys know, you've probably heard maybe of a systematic theology textbook. Just to make sure you all are aware of what systematic theology is, it's the discipline of trying to take what the Bible teaches and take different teachings in the Bible and put it into categories of doctrine to try to figure out the system of theology that exists in the Bible. So the argument would go, God is a perfect being. He is perfect knowledge personified. Therefore, if theology is the study of a perfect God, there must be a perfect system of theology that he has revealed in his word. And, of course, Christians for millennia have been trying to figure out the perfect system of theology that the Bible teaches. It's common. A lot of Christians make the mistake in believing that systematic theology is trying to impose doctrine on the Word of God. But historically, it's been quite the opposite. It's trying to take what the Bible says, extract that teaching, and then systematize it or organize it under different categories so we can make sense of how it fits together as a whole. That's all systematic theology is. Just wanting to make sure y'all are clear on that. But in any case, positive side of origin, he wrote uh, the first systematic theology that we have record of in church history called On First Principles. He also wrote commentaries on a number of books of the Bible, and he defended the Christian faith vehemently, throughout the course of his life and ministry. These are positive things that Origen did as a believer. I also want to note, this isn't in the curriculum, this is bonus material here, uh, around 250 AD. So think, this is, well, let me, let, me, let me jump ahead to what we're going to be talking about in the next few weeks. Many people will argue, and I think we've talked about this in previous weeks, but many people argue that, Christians had no concept of a New Testament canon until the Council of Nicaea. How many of you guys have heard of the Da Vinci Code? You ever heard of that? Old movie, book. Okay, it's the idea that, that in, the, in, the, um, in the 4th century, under the uh, reign of Constantine, the Roman Empire became a Christianized nation, and then they began to put together their idea of what the Bible should be, based on all these different books that were out there. So the idea goes that Constantine organized this synod or this assembly of leadership in the empire, and they began to arbitrarily pick and choose which books they wanted to go into the Bible and which books they didn't want to go into the Bible. If you go to many liberal universities today, that is exactly what you're going to hear. You're going to hear that there was no concept of a New Testament canon. 
that it is a merely a construct that the Roman Empire created under a basically a dictator who just wanted to impose his religious convictions on the empire at large. So they would say that what you have in the Bible just happened by chance. It's arbitrary. It could have been any number of available books that were uh, you know, being distributed at that period in history. Origen is one of many examples why that's not the case. In 250 AD, Origen produced a list of New Testament writings that he claimed were, quote, undisputed amongst 3rd century Christians. So this is basically 75 years before the Council of Nicaea. Okay, And he's saying these books are undisputed amongst Christians. These are books that we recognize have divine authority. They came from God the Holy Spirit. They're inspired by God. They're authoritative, authoritative on the church. He said every book in the New Testament that we have today, except for Hebrews, 2 Peter, and 2 and 3 John, were unanimously accepted. There was debate on Hebrews because nobody to this day knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. And there's debate on 2 and 3 John because of how brief they are and because of the fact that they're, they're dealing less with doctrinal matters and more with personal matters. In other words, Paul, John, Peter, they wrote letters to friends and to contemporaries and not everything they wrote dealt specifically with issues that pertain to the local church. So the argument in those days would have been, well, yeah, these, they, these came from John the Apostle, but are they really canonical letters or are these just letters that John wrote for the sake of instructing a fellow believer on, on this, this, and this? You know, they, they weren't necessarily seen as these are, these are binding authoritative letters. Eventually, the church would come to unanimity of view on that. And of course, just because they weren't undisputed in that day doesn't mean that people weren't viewing them as authoritative. You can go back a century before to the um, second century, you have the Miratorium Fragment, which lists all of those books as well. All those books as being authoritative, except for um, Hebrews, 2 Peter, and 2 and 3 John. So you have in the 2nd and the 3rd centuries, you have just a few New Testament books that weren't undisputed literature. And even these um, four books that were still being debated, some Christians viewed them as authoritative already. So again... Whenever you go to college, this is a, a parenthesis here. Whenever you go to college, some of you are going to go to liberal universities, secular universities. You're going to take a humanities class as part of your basics that you got to take no matter what. And you might have a professor who is not a believer. And they might even not just be an unbeliever. They might be one of those unbelieving professors that wants to destroy your faith in their class. There are some professors out there who make it their mission. I don't want there to be a single Bible-believing Christian in here by the time I'm done with them. If you guys think that's crazy, it's not crazy, guys. You guys think I'm, I'm being one of those radicals. This is real life. This is real life. You're going to face professors that don't want a single Christian by the end of the semester. They're going to tell you all kinds of nonsense that we can refute with a simple look into church history such as this. There was, a, there was a canonical understanding as early as the second century. And of course, we see it here in the third century with origin. It was not an arbitrary construct that was uh, made at the Council of Nicaea. But we'll talk about that more in a few weeks when we get to the fourth century. 
in our curriculum. So origin, positive contributions. He wrote the first systematic theology we have uh, in church history, at least that survived up to this point. He wrote commentaries on the Bible. He defended the faith against unbelievers. He also provides us with evidence that there was a clear construct of the canon in his day. Again, this is during the 3rd century, so 2nd and 3rd century, coming well before the Council of Nicaea, which we'll talk about in the weeks to come. Now let's look at the negative side of the coin. Before we look at the negative side of the coin, do you all understand what I'm saying? Yeah, you following? Okay, y'all just make sure, you know what I mean by canon, right? We're talking about the New Testament, okay? I know the Council of Nicaea, you're probably like, what in the world is he talking about? I know we're going to get to that in a few weeks, but keep the, guys, keep this, keep your notes, keep this in handy, keep my phone number handy. You may need all of this when you go to college. Uh, I'll be more than happy to help you out in any way that I can. Um, anyways, negative side. Why I mentioned Origen is probably the most fascinating character we've studied, also the most frustrating. We're going to figure out why he was frustrating. We're going to figure out why he may not even be in heaven. Now I really grabbed your attention. Let's talk about that. All right, negative side of the coin. On the negative side, Origen taught some very strange doctrines. He taught the preexistence of the human soul, and he taught universalism. That is, all people will be saved. Now, in light of those false teachings that Origen espoused, that's not the only negative things that he espoused. We're going to get to some more in a second. But I want to stop there just to see if you guys can remember some of the uh, things we've talked about in the past. First thing I want us to talk about is this, answering this question. What false religions continue to teach the pre-existence of the human soul? There's one in particular. So, so uh, yeah, reincarnation, Hinduism thought, right? Uh, Buddhism in some strands also teach the pre-existence of human souls. So any, re- any reincarnation Eastern religion teaches to some degree or another pre-existence of human souls. That when you're born... That doesn't necessarily mean that's the first time you came into being. You may have lived a previous life, you know, as a cow or as some other being, right? Um, but there's one particular that that really, I mean, it, it, it's predominant in the West. You know, Eastern religions, we, we recognize there's some real differences out there, different, completely different worldviews out there. Not to say they're not in the West, but Eastern religions are pretty unique. Pre-existence of the human soul simply means that you existed in some realm before you were conceived. You as you existed. Like, like Hannah Rodriguez as a form. Now, here's another part of review. Okay, so do y'all remember? Do y'all, first off, do y'all remember what we mean by forms? Who taught about the forms? The most important philosopher in, 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 uh, in, in the history of philosophy, probably. Well... He studied under him. Starts with a P. No, not Paul. Think about it. You guys know. You guys know this man, Plato. Okay, got to know this. Very important. Plato believed that the highest realm, that the, that the highest realm 
is this realm of the forms, okay? So that chair may be in existence, right? That chair is a real chair, but the form of chair, the idea of chairness, that is the highest, that, that is the highest or the most perfect realm of, uh, of reality. So it's not necessarily what actually exists. It's the idea of existence or, or the essence of existence that is most important, that is most perfect. Okay, so I kind of just gave another hint. This idea of pre-existence of the human soul is platonic. Okay, it's the idea that the form. So Hannah Rodriguez, you are Hannah Rodriguez, but the form of Hannah Rodriguez, the idea of Hannah Rodriguez, that is the highest realm of perfection, the highest realm of existence. Okay, so for origin, heavily influenced by Plato. In Greek philosophy, he believes that if the form is the highest realm of existence, then we had to have existed in that realm at some point before coming into being, just like that chair. Before that chair came into being, chairness existed in the realm of the forms. Okay? You follow? It's weird, but that, that's, the, that's the mindset that undergirds this whole system of belief. Now, what I'm asking is in the, in the West, I want to see, I mean, we're going to guess it eventually, but there is a religion who teaches pre-existence of the human soul. They probably aren't as sophisticated in the, in the philosophy I've just given to you. Mormons. That's it. Let me summarize Mormon eschatology in a nutshell. Probably overly simplified, but it's a very easy and engaging our Mormon friends. As God is, man or excuse me, let's see. As man is, God once was. As God is, man will someday become. That's it. Okay? As man is, God once was. As God is, man will someday become. So there is a... So, so we will become... We will become gods at some point. Okay? According to Mormon eschatology, Mormon, Mormon soteriology, Mormon doctrine of salvation, doctrine of last things, or, or doctrine of ultimate goals. But also, at some point, God and the plurality of gods that exist in Mormonism, at one point, they were just like us. And it, it, it ultimately leads to an infinite regress. Mormons can't deal with that, because think about it. If there's a constant cycle of becoming a man to a god and, and going all the way back forever and ever and ever, you got to eventually get to an eternal something, right? If God was one time a man, well, then how did man get there? Well, there had to have been a God. Well, how did that God there? Well, he was a man at some point. Well, then how did that guy become a man? Well, he was a God, you know? And it, or, it goes all the way back forever and ever and ever. It's an infinite regress, Mormonism. Now, the preexistence of the human soul, though, I think it's one attempt to deal with that conundrum. I don't know how you make sense of it. But, nonetheless, Mormons teach that at some point, you and I, before we were conceived, we, we, we existed somewhere, somehow. And then we came into being. That is a knockoff or an offshoot of what Origen taught, which is ultimately a knockoff or an offshoot of what Plato taught. Okay? And by the way, how many of you guys have heard 
that the body is like a prison or a, or a, um, it's like a shell for the soul, right? And the body's kind of, it's kind of viewed as bad almost, like the, the, we've got to escape, right? So that's the idea. Plato's eschatology is that matter is, matter is less than ideal, right? That chair is not the ideal. The form of chairness is that of which is ideal. So for us, we, we once existed in the realm, like the idea, Dewey Doval, in the realm of the forms existed. He came into being as Dewey Doval. Someday his soul is going to escape this body and return, as it were, to the realm of the form. I will be once more Dewey Doval as an as a idea, as a form. No, 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 no. Chair, there, there is, we, we're different because we're rational creatures to Plato. So there's a difference between that chair having a soul versus us having a soul. He would not say a chair has a soul. He would say a chair has a form. He would say that we, though, as rational creatures, as human beings, we have a soul, but we're trapped in this material body. So there is a radical uh, matter and immat- or a, a, a radical material and immaterial dualism undergirding Plato's, Plato's thought. Immaterial is always better than material for Plato. And it's the case for Origin as well. It sounds like he was just a really smart guy who <laughs> Guys, most philosophers that are not Christian are some of the f- most brilliant thinkers the world has ever known, but they never came to know Christ. There are many brilliant men who we should study, we should understand, because it helps us, like Plato, we use, his, we, we use Platonic concepts in Christianity. We use essences, right? That chairness is an essence, it's a form. God is the ultimate, he is essence itself, right? The divine essence, the divine being, okay? When we talk about God as a being or an essence or a substance, that is Platonic categories being used to describe what the Bible teaches. So even God in his mercy gave Plato... He gave Plato some revelation about the way that philosophical realities fit together. So even unbelievers can can make positive contributions towards philosophy, science, history, so on and so forth. Um, But we went on a tangent there. I'm glad we got to the actual question. Um, Mormonism teaches the preexistence of the human soul. Um, How would you refute that? In Scripture, most important thing. How do we tie it back to Scripture? Genesis where he said, and God made man. God made man, right? Right? At that moment, man came into being. Where, what else? Where else would you go? I've got some written down. But I want to see if you guys had any. No, no, just no, no. Go, go into scripture to teach that. We're, now we're thinking about where in scripture does it teach that we do not have preexistence, like that that we came into being at a certain point, that we didn't exist, we didn't exist forever before. Well, I know, I know the Bible doesn't teach that. We're trying to, we're trying to figure out where in scripture would we go to show that that's the case. How about this one? Psalm one nineteen thirteen to sixteen. For you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. 
I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not yet one of them. See, God, it says God knows us from eternity past, but we were created, right? You knitted me in my mother's womb. You presided over my, my, my substance that was being formed, right? We didn't exist in eternity past. But God still knew like our form in eternity past. Yeah. Yeah, God, God knows everything in and of himself. So then would that mean that our material bodies would relate to how God sees our form? So yeah, God. When God when God sees Charlie Martin, he he sees perfectly the idea of Charlie Martin. He also sees who you would become in history at the appointed time. So God thinks. So when God thinks Charlie Martin, well, let me just throw this caveat out there to blow your mind a little bit. God doesn't have to think about anything. He just knows at one and the same time. For God to be is for God to know exhaustively and infinitely everything and every possibility that could ever come into being, and how it relates to everything else. So Charlie Martin in God's mind is the idea of Charlie Martin, the existence of Charlie Martin, every detail about Charlie Martin, every conversation Charlie Martin would ever have, every person that would ever be in Charlie Martin's life, so on and so forth. But it's it's that but that that is what it's in the that is in God's being. That is not something that exists outside of the divine essence, right? So you so Charlie Martin does not exist outside of God's God's knowledge that you would come into being. So God can like make his immaterial form into material form because like he can think of you and then he makes you. Okay, yes, he, he creates you, but he's not he's not making he's not making his immaterial form into into a form, like a material form. Like I think what you're so what I'm trying to what I'm trying to get to you is you were Charlie Martin, you were not God, you were distinct from God, right? So God is immaterial, and God has no God has no material form, right? He's he's pure immaterial being. You are a creation of God. God knows you from eternity past. You came into being at an appointed time in history, and you, as Charlie Martin, have a physical body and an immaterial soul. Okay, but but you 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 are not an offshoot of God. You are a creature created in the image of God. That was brought forth through natural procreation from your mom and your dad. But God gave you a soul. He oversaw the formation of you in the womb and the in the eventual birth of you. And then you were brought into creation at that. Or you were brought into you were brought into the world at that point through birth. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah so like guys, remember, creator creature distinction. We we do not we are not offshoots of the divine being. He superintends our birth and our existence. He decrees our existence in eternity past. At the appointed time, he oversees how we come into being through natural procreation, through our, through our uh, biological father and mother. And then he sustains us throughout our life. But we are forever and always ourselves. We're, we're, we're not God or part of God. We are made in his image, but we are not God himself. Or we're not, a, we're not an offshoot of his being. There's always a creator-creature distinction. That's a good question. Um, a few more texts, though, that we could use. 
to refute the idea of the preexistence of the human soul. Jeremiah 1.5. How about 1 John? 1 John? Yeah, 1. Or John, John 1, in the beginning of the Word. Yeah, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. It doesn't say in the beginning was Dewey Doval with God. Right? It was, it was just God. It was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, those were the only persons that existed in eternity. And they existed within the divine being. Uh, good, good, Thomas. That's a good, uh, good verse to go to. Good reminder there. Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I've appointed you a prophet to the nation. So God is, he knows us. He has plans for us. But we are not yet in being. We are not yet in existence. We are, we are, we are in the mind of God as a, as a future eventual reality that would come into existence. Sorry. I can kind of see how they took it out of context and said, where he says, I knew you before you were born. I can see where they took that out. Of yeah. Context and got that. Yeah. And again, it's just, it's just a matter of, do you know, we have to distinguish between the creature and the creator. That if it, most errors in theology are due to a failure to distinguish between creator and creature. You have to distinguish between God in himself and then everything that's not God. Everything that is not God is a creature, fundamentally. Time is a creature. Matter is a creature. Everything not God is creature. When you make that distinction, when you get that right, you, you're going to get a lot of other things right as well. Now, where would we go to to refute the idea of universalism from Scripture? This, is a, this, this should be a, one that many of you guys were able to go to quickly. The idea that not everybody will be saved. Where would we go to refute that idea? Sai, did you have your hand up? Michael? Yeah, those who believe in me, right? They're going to be saved. Conversely, those who don't believe in me will not have eternal life. Okay, yeah, we've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. The wage of sin is death, but the free gift is eternal life through Christ Jesus, Romans 6, 23. How about John 14, 6? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Think about the audacity of that statement of Jesus is not who he claimed to be. I'm the only way. That's what he's declaring. He's saying, you, he's, he's saying, you can't go to God through anything or anyone else but me. I'm it. Yeah, better be careful quoting from that part of the Bible. You might get into trouble. Uh, that was a joke. <laughs> I mean, kind of, kind of a joke, but, but, but not really a joke in some circles. Anyways, um, Acts 4.12. There's one name given under heaven whereby man can be saved, and that's Jesus Christ. One name, one man, right? Others we go to, but you get the idea. There's plenty. We do not teach universalism. We teach um, exclusive, exclusivism. It's a hard word to say. Exclusivism. Salvation is exclusive. It's exclusively through Christ. Faith in Christ. Everybody follow? We got into some philosophy today. 
Uh, this is good stuff. The listener's probably going to be like, what in the world are these people talking about? The youth program, Edna, Texas. Um, okay, moving on. Um, now we're going to get into Scripture, Origins Doctrine of Scripture. This is, gets back to our passage we read at the beginning of the lesson from 2 Timothy 2.15. Origin promoted an allegorical approach to the interpretation of the Bible. The allegorical approach had already been used in Alexandria, and Origen continued to popularize it. According to Origen's allegorical method of Bible interpretation, each text of Scripture has three levels of meaning corresponding to the body, soul, and spirit. If you have a workbook, here's the blanks. The body. The literal meaning of Scripture focuses on what the text says if taken at face value. This meaning is regarded as the least helpful. So uh, the literal meaning of Scripture, that's the first layer or the first level of uh, Origen's method of interpreting the Bible. Second level, the soul or the ethical meaning, meaning involving the moral truth being taught by the text. So you have the literal corresponding to the body, the ethical corresponding to the soul, and then the spiritual corresponding to the spirit. That's the third blank. The spiritual meaning allows the interpreter to turn the text of Scripture into a series of symbols or metaphors which were generally interpreted in ways that pointed to Jesus. So I guess that's good. They ultimately point to Christ, but, uh, you know, there can be some danger, right? Everything's a symbol or a, a metaphor. It's dangerous. So, um, as, as Business notes here, though Origen's allegorical approach to interpretation was undoubtedly well-intentioned, it opened the door to all sorts of imaginative and fanciful interpretations. So my question is this. To what extent should Christians overlook gross theological or personal error if an individual has good intentions? So Origen had great intentions when he said that the human soul exists from eternity, pre-exists our, our coming into being in earth at the appointed time. Origen had good intentions when he taught that all people will be saved. Origen had good intentions when he said that there's three layers or three levels of interpreting the Bible. But how do we respond to that as Christians, especially by a leader as influential as origin was. Let's make it like, let's make it relevant to our day, okay? Let's say that John MacArthur was teaching this. Or, no, let's go further than that. Joel Osteen, right? He's got a big following. Everybody knows who Joel Osteen is. Everybody sees he has a smile on his face. He's got great intentions. He's just wanting to help people out, right, in their journey, what, are we, what should be our response as Christians to, to teaching that's frankly heretical? Universalism? That is not, we don't play with that. So how should we respond? What do you think? I'll tell you how the church responded in his day after we talk about how you think we should respond. If a teacher says that Everybody will ultimately be saved. Billy Graham and later, later in his life leaned towards universalism, if you didn't know that. The great evangelist on Robert Schuller espoused a, you could say, a soft form of universalism. 
It's just crazy to think about. He preached the gospel his whole life and ministry. And at the end of his life, hinted at universalism. That God, because he's loving, will just welcome everybody. How do you respond to that? Biblically. I agree. You definitely need to unpack it. But what would you say to your friend who says, I, I think I'm going to go and let's say Origin was, was teaching up the street here. I think I'm going to go to Origin's church. Yeah. Well, what, what would you say anything else? Anybody? Sai? Yeah, it comes right out. comes right after. No, it's anyone else have any thoughts? Guys, we're talking about a teacher who believes and teaches that all people will be saved. Okay. What do you what do you say to somebody who wants to sit under their teaching? What do you say about that teacher? What should we do? Yeah, well, he, he shows wrath um, against sin. Yes, correct. Okay, you guys are, I think you're overthinking this a little bit. Let me tell you exactly what you should do. If you have a false teacher, again, this isn't, this isn't a misguided person. This is somebody in religious authority who is deceived. I don't care how well their intentions are. They are spewing falsehood. They are deceiving the masses. You should pointedly... Call them for what they are. They are a false teacher. They are leading people astray. And you should call them to repentance. Now, obviously, I don't know Joel Osteen. There's not really any ways I can call him to repentance. I mean, I can tell, I can say he needs to repent. Um, other men who have a bigger platform can, can uh, you know, call him to repentance publicly. But we should be clear. Hey, that's a false teacher. He teaches universalism. Uh, stay away from him at all costs. He needs to repent of that or he is going to hell. That's the reality. You cannot be a Christian and say that you can be saved in any other way but Jesus Christ. I don't care how kind they are. I don't care how well-intentioned they are. It's just the biblical reality. We have to draw those lines because today you're considered as unloving if you do that. How can you be so cruel? He's so nice. He, he's so welcoming. He's so kind. Why would you say he's going to hell? That he's a false teacher. You're just one of those radicals. My friends, we go no further and we certainly go no less than what the Bible says. Okay? And this is exactly what the church did with Origen. Because of some of Origen's controversial teachings, he was condemned by a 6th century church council the Second Council of Constantinople in 553, regarded as a heretic whose writings, though we should study, and writings we can benefit from, in many regards, he is a false teacher. Origin. 
And he was martyred. Here's what's crazy. He was tortured for his faith. He persevered in his profession of faith all the way up to the point of death. The noble way of dying. I'm sure he believed that he was doing all of this for the glory of God. But to teach universalism, that, that, that's bad, guys. I would never, unless there, unless by some miracle that only God can see and work through, all things are possible with God, right? We, we recognize that. But you cannot be saved and be a universalist. You can't be. It's impossible to be. It is impossible. You have to, and I'll say this, every person who identifies as a Christian, you have to be willing to die for that. Jesus is the only way. No other name given under heaven whereby a man can be saved. Like that, that's one of those, like, the exclusivity of Christ is a first order doctrine. If we get away from that, you might as well shut the church down. I mean, we're, we're, no, longer, we're no longer the church. That's how big of a deal this is, guys. That's what I wanted you to take away. This is a brilliant man. He did many great things. We can profit from studying him, right? I mentioned earlier, we should read people we disagree with. We should learn, study, benefit from them, right? Insofar as what they say is true, it comes from God, right? All truth is God's truth. If an atheist can, can, can provide us with great advancements in science or medicine or history or what have you, benefit from them. It's God's truth. He's revealed it in creation graciously. But at the end of the day, universalism. That, that's damnable. That's bad. I want to make sure you're clear on that. So what, if you take away anything from today, universalism is bad. Okay? <laughs> that's like, take that home with you today. That's what I want to make sure we're all aware of. Um, again, well-meaning, he literally died for his profession of faith, but universalism, can't get around it. Side. It's a great question, Sai. I don't know the answer to that because it doesn't make any sense. It's not biblical. You can't be. You cannot read the Bible at face value and come away thinking that everybody's going to heaven. It's impossible. Again, but remember, look at origin. The literal meaning of Scripture. That's the that's the least important part of understanding the Bible. We got to get to the secret meaning of the of the Bible. We got to pull back all these layers to to really understand what God wants us to learn. And that's where we're going to close um, for discussion about his interpretive method. That is hermeneutic. Does everybody remember what hermeneutic means? Hermeneutic, method of interpreting the Bible. Another good word to... H-E-R-M-E-N-E-U-T-I-C. No, hermeneutic is just method of interpreting the Bible. His hermeneutic was called the allegorical method. Yeah, literal, spiritual, and ethical. That's right. Now, I want to ask us this question. You guys are learning so much today. You're probably drinking out of a fire hydrant. This is good stuff. Yeah, you're drinking out of a fire hydrant. This is great. This is good. Drink up. Seriously, this is how you learn. It's how we grow. 
Now, here's my question before we close. Very important question. As noted above, Origen's approach to biblical interpretation left the door open for imaginative and fanciful interpretations that had nothing to do with the passage of Scripture being studied. Why is it so important to have a sound method for studying and interpreting the Bible, and what are some potential consequences for misinterpreting the Bible? So first part of the question, why do we need to guard against somebody who says, hey, like the literal meaning, the plain reading of Scripture, that's, that's really not what's important. That, that's least important. That's what Origen said, right? Literal meaning doesn't matter. We've got to find the, the spiritual meaning. We've got to find the, the, the ethical meaning. We've got to really get under the text to figure out what God wants us to, to know about his word. What's wrong with that? Why is that a problem? Michael? Yeah, right? I mean, it's that simple. Well, I mean, if you think about it, if you take, if you deem them all as three, as like the same amount of importance, wouldn't it, wouldn't the view kind of make sense? Because you could, you could come up with theories that were proved by the literal meaning, like the church. It wasn't a literal meaning, but it is proved by the literal meaning because you took the, this other meaning of like the... So you're saying you could, you, you could use all that to justify your beliefs? I guess it's, I'm, I'm trying to track with what you're, no, what you're no, going. You could, like, yeah, like your spiritual and ethical meaning. Right. You can have those as long as it is confirmed by the literal meaning. Right. Right. Is that right? That, that, I, I mean, theoretically, it could be right. It's not what Origin was going for. Yeah, but, like but, that's, but that's an like, alternate view. That yeah. I, I mean, obviously, any, any ethical or spiritual application that we take is based in the literal meaning. I completely agree. Um, but, but the literal, like, here, here's the way that, here's what I would tell you guys. A passage of Scripture can mean more than the literal meaning. Like, you could have what the author intended and then say, for example, Old Testament, right? Author intended something, and then the New Testament shows us, yeah, the original meaning, it means that, but it also goes beyond that to mean this, this, and this, right? That, that certainly happens. But it can never mean less than the literal. Like, the literal at the bare minimum, the meaning of a passage of Scripture at the bare minimum is the literal meaning of the text. If we lose the literal meaning of the text, we might as well just close our Bibles and tell and just tell people whatever we want to believe in. Because if you, if, if all that matters is these these kind of secret hidden meanings, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to mean. Hey, thou shalt not murder. Yeah, I know it says that, but what it really means spiritually is I can murder those who I disagree with on this matter because it's you know it's 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 my moral obligation that's my spiritual right you know and ethically yeah i know it's wrong to commit adultery but you know is it really that bad i mean we we can go a little bit deeper and know god god will overlook this sin because of x y and z that that's we can get there maybe you know that's 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 so dangerous when you lose the literal you can go bananas with anything I mean, I'm, I'm taking it to the extreme here, obviously, right? But that's what can happen. Let me give you an example. Famous theologian of the 20th century, Karl Barth. Okay? He's, one of the, he's probably the most important theologian of the 20th century. He's, I don't think he's a Christian either. We don't have time to talk about why. Um, well, I'll tell you why, because it's going to come out in this answer. Um, he, he, he taught heretical beliefs. But on top of that, um, he had a long-standing affair 
with his research assistant. I think it was over 20 years. He was married, had kids, but he had an affair with his research assistant for a long time. And uh, I'm pretty sure he actually moved her in with his family too. And he used his theological framework to justify why the affair was right. His theology, his method of interpreting the Bible, he found ways to justify having an extramarital affair and remain married to his, his wife through it all and you know, had a horrible marriage as a result of that, as you can imagine. Uh, there's a good biography that just got released called A Life in Conflict, uh, uh, Life of Karl Barth. Gets into those weeds. Um, but that's a perfect example. We don't have time to get into the nuances of Bart's theology because we're about to have to go to service. But the gist of it is people throughout history have used their crazy interpretive method of the Bible, their crazy method of interpreting the Bible, to justify all kinds of atrocities. You know, even Adolf Hitler used certain parts of the Bible and some of his speeches and some of his uh, military propaganda as justification for genocide, as justification for superiority of the Aryan race, and so on and so forth. So people throughout history have had crazy ways of interpreting the Bible to cause really great problems, uh, whether it be in the church or in society or, or whatever context they were in. So as we prepare to close in prayer and as we bring this lesson to a conclusion, lesson four in our Forerunners of the Faith workbook, Two things, two takeaways. What was the first takeaway we talked about? About universalism? Bad. Universalism, bad, right? Right, they used to say Trump, bad, right? Orange man, bad, universalism, bad, right? Uh, we can debate if Trump was bad and whatnot <laughs> some other time. Don't want to open up that can of worms. Uh, so yeah, number one, takeaway number one, universalism, bad. Takeaway number two, interpret the Bible literally. Interpret it plainly. Don't go looking for some hidden meaning that's not explicitly made clear in Scripture. God wants you to understand who He is. He wants you to understand His Word. Read the Bible expectantly. Read it expecting that the plain meaning is what God has for you to know. God is a gracious God. He has revealed Himself clearly to us in His Word. Well, let me close in prayer, guys. We'll be sitting together if you want to sit with the youth uh, as normal on the front left-hand side of the sanctuary. Uh, But in any case, hope to see you tonight at Table Talk if you're available to come. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your grace in our life because we know that apart from your grace and mercy, we would not endure to the end. We would not be saved and we would not persevere to heaven, God. And we know that there are many value, uh, or excuse me, there's many valuable and, and, and profitable insights to learn from unbelievers and, and men like Origen, Lord, who we entrust his soul to your care. It's, it's hard to fathom that a man who, who did so much for your kingdom, even willing to die for his profession of faith, could teach her- heresy, Lord. And, and Father, at the surface, it appears that he's not with you, but Lord, we know that all things are possible with you, so we, we know we can ultimately entrust his soul to your care, wherever he is. And Father, we also know that um, we have a responsibility in the here and the now to stand firm in what you've revealed to us in your word as these men like, like Justin and Tertullian, Irenaeus, all of these men that were faithful 
to the end did. And even like Origen, Lord, we are called uh, to be willing to die for truth. Uh, even though Origen went off base, God, keep us from following suit, God. And may we finish strong. May we pursue you with all of our being in this life. May we be faithful not only in doctrine, but also in our lifestyle. May we be faithful in sharing our faith to other people as well as we have opportunities to do so. May this time of worship with your people, FBC Edna, be refreshing to our soul this morning. Keep us focused on the words that we sing, on the, pray, on the prayers that we offer in prayer, and Lord, on the preaching of your word that Brother Robert's going to bring to us today. Lord, we love you. We give you thanks for all that you've done for us, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.